Good morning. morning. Wonderful to see everyone today. We're thankful that you could be a part of our worship assembly as we worship the Lord together and remember all of his goodness to us. I appreciate Alan Craig mentioning in his prayer uh, Christians around the world who are being persecuted. I know that a lot of you have been following the news about the uh, buildup of uh, Russian forces on the eastern border of Ukraine. And uh, that situation is becoming more and more tense by the day. Uh, we received word just a couple of days ago that the American embassy in uh, Ukraine is quietly telling all Americans to get out. Uh, they are not certain, of course, that uh, there is going to be an invasion, but they certainly see that possibility. Uh, that will be extremely dire for our brothers and sisters there, uh, not only because of the threat of war, but uh, because of the economy that's already in extremely poor condition, the uh, fact that their cost of heating their homes here at the coldest time of the year has gone up four and five times the normal. Uh, this is a very, very dire situation for them. And so I want to ask you to please be praying uh, for them especially. And uh, if you would, bow with me now and let's pray for them together. Father, we thank you so much for so many blessings. We thank you for your love shown to us in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that we, through Christ, have fellowship with believers in so many parts of the world. And we especially treasure our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And we want to pray for them. We pray for the entire country. And uh, pray, Father, that there will not be further escalation of the conflicts there. And Pray that you would see them through this difficult time, that you would help us to know what we can do to help them and to encourage them, and that you would put your hand of protection over them and guide them through uh, these very difficult days. We pray, Father, for peace. We pray for peace, uh, not only politically and militarily, but peace in people's hearts, uh, that they will uh, not care so much about the things of war but to care more and more about the things of God. Father, we continue to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at uh, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And you're probably aware from the commercials and other uh, avenues, excuse me, that tracing genealogies has become big business. Uh, you can send $100 to some of these places, and they will take the uh, sample. Well, you have to send your DNA with it, but it's mostly the $100. But uh, they'll take your DNA from your $100, and they will uh, tell you, you know, where all your ancestors came from and where they went and where they've been and all kinds of things. And uh, it kind of reminds me of a statement that Mark Twain once wrote. He said, why waste your money looking up your family tree? Just go into politics and your opponents will do it for you. A lot of truth in that, uh, isn't there? But I want you to think for a minute. If you could write your own genealogy, you could just make up your genealogy to be whatever you wanted it to be, who would you want to be in it? Would you want there to be royalty? Would you want there to be a distinguished statesman in it? Would you want there to be leaders in business and uh, industry, famous athletes, movie stars? You know, just let your imagination roam. Who all would you want in your genealogy? And at the same time, 
Who would you not want to include in your genealogy? Thieves, scoundrels, adulterers, Democrats, Republicans. <laughs> Just let your mind roam. Who would you want, to, of all things, to think, I, I would not want that kind of person to be in my genealogy? Well, there are a lot of people who believe that the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 isn't real. They think Matthew made it up. They think that he just concocted it in order to give more legitimacy to the idea that Jesus was descended from David, therefore qualified to be the Messiah of Israel. But they say this is not his real family tree. This is the made-up family tree that supposedly points to uh, the fact that he is qualified to be the Messiah. But when you read this genealogy closely, it really doesn't seem that that's very likely because this is not a cleaned-up genealogy. This is not a genealogy that just includes all the, the right people that any self-respecting first-century Jew would want to have in their genealogy. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. Uh, the genealogy is Matthew's first hint of what he states so fully and clearly at the end of the gospel, or what Jesus states so fully and clearly when he tells the disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. You get the first hint of that in, in Matthew chapter 1, that the gospel is indeed for all. Nobody is excluded. So let's look at the genealogy for a minute. I hope you've got your Bible open to Matthew 1, and, and let's talk about what's in it that indicates that that is the case. First of all, this genealogy says loudly and clearly that the gospel is for both men and women. Now, we don't think that that's surprising in our day and time and in our culture, but in other cultures it would have been surprising. In a first century Jewish setting, it would have been surprising to find five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, it wasn't unheard of to have women in a genealogy, but it was unusual. It was highly unusual. So the fact that Matthew includes five in Jesus' genealogy, that there are five women named in Jesus' genealogy, tells us that he is making a point. There are four women from the Old Testament, and then there's Jesus' mother, uh, Mary. You have Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah. Her name's not given, but it's Bathsheba. And then Jesus' mother, Mary. Matthew obviously is telling us something here about the role of men and women in the kingdom of God. Now, as you well know, women have uh, an honored place in the Old Testament, but their status uh, in Jewish society was clearly uh, second class. They just simply were not considered to be on the same level as men, and that was especially so uh, in later uh, Judaism uh, and around the time of Jesus and uh, the centuries coming after that. There's a famous rabbinic prayer uh, that was recited by Jewish men uh, frequently that said, Lord, I thank thee that thou hast not made me a Gentile or a woman or a slave. That'll give you an idea of how people thought about women. I thank you for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a woman. I thank you for not making me a slave. That's the way that uh, so many people in Jesus' time thought. Uh, in Jewish uh, antiquity, men never spoke to women in public, not even their own wives. You just would not speak to another woman in public. It was considered demeaning, it was considered shameful, it was totally inappropriate. 
When they went to the synagogues, men and women did not sit together. Even husbands and wives did not sit together. The men sat in one place. The women sat uh, in, a, in another. Uh, it reminds me of some of the old uh, pioneer church buildings that I've seen, you know, that have the pews with a kind of a solid wall down the middle. And the, the one side was the men's side. The other side was the women's side. You can always tell which one was the men's side, by the way. The tobacco stains on the floor. Yeah, that's where the spittoons were. Uh, now, I don't know if they had those in the synagogues, but uh, nevertheless, the men and the women did not sit together because it was considered inappropriate uh, to do that. Women were not permitted to study the law. That was considered totally inappropriate. That was a man's uh, inter enterprise. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha, and he, uh, before dinner is being prepared, or as it's being prepared, Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and listens to his teaching. And you remember how, how irked Martha got about that. And she, she went up to Jesus. Uh, it's kind of first century way of saying she got in his face. And she said, Lord, tell my sister to come and help me. You know why she gets so upset? It's not only because she's got to do all the, the cooking and, and everything in the kitchen. But also because what Mary was doing was considered inappropriate. Not right for her to sit there and learn the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus said she has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. So you've got all that in the background, and then you come to this genealogy in Matthew 1. And this genealogy lists these five women, and it honors them by placing them in the genealogy of Jesus. Telling us what? That Jesus did not come simply for the males of the world. He came for both men and women. The genealogy also tells us that the gospel is for all nations. Now, certainly no self-respecting Jew would want to admit it if his ancestry was not thoroughly Jewish, if there were actually Gentiles in there somewhere. That would be considered an embarrassment. But in Jesus' family tree, it's both. You know, I really suspect that in most family trees back then, it would have been both. They just wouldn't have wanted to admit it. But the genealogy of Jesus frankly admits that there are both Gentiles and Jews. Uh, go back and look again uh, at some of the, uh, the women who are mentioned in particular. According to the Jewish book of Jubilees, uh, Tamar, uh, who is mentioned uh, as having borne twin sons to Judah, Tamar was an Aramean. She was not an Israelite. In fact, her husband, Ur, uh, was not completely Jewish either because his father, Judah, had at first married a Canaanite woman. Do you remember what the Old Testament said about that? The Israelites were told, when you go into the promised land, do not intermarry with the people of the land. They are idolaters. They are pagans. They will influence you with their religion, and they will bring you down. Judah had married a Canaanite woman, and his firstborn, he had three sons by this Canaanite woman. The firstborn was Ur, and Ur was the husband of Tamar, uh, who died apparently fairly young. And so the twin sons that Tamar bore to Judah were not fully Israelites by birth, and that means that everybody who came after them were not fully Israelites by birth either. You see, all of a sudden this genealogy is getting kind of cloudy. Uh, it's not as pure and pristine as a first century Jew would have liked for his genealogy to be. Rahab, as you well know, was a Canaanite. 
Uh, she's the one who hid the spies in the city of Jericho when they came to scout out the promised land. Uh, and she hid them. Uh, she was one of the people uh, that the people of Israel had been instructed to utterly destroy. But they didn't destroy her because she welcomed the spies and hid them and sent them out by another way. And because she did that, she had an honored place in Israelite history. She also became the great-great-grandmother of King David. So David's great-great-grandmother was a Canaanite of all things. And then you go down to the story of Ruth. And you remember that Ruth was a Moabite. She was married to an Israelite man because this Israelite family, due to, to a famine, had left uh, Palestine and they had gone into the land of Moab. They had moved out eastward uh, into Moab to try to survive during this famine. And there were two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they both married Moabite women. And one of those women was Ruth. And then all three of the men, the father and the two sons, died. And so the Ruth uh, and her uh, sister-in-law Orpah and her mother-in-law all were faced with the decision, what are we going to do? And Ruth ended up going back to uh, the land of Judah, of Judea, with her, Naomi, her mother-in-law. And she ended up marrying a man by the name of Boaz. And as a result, she gave birth to a son named Obed. And Obed was David's grandfather. So here again, you have a, someone from another nation, a Moabite, who was in the genealogy, not just of David, but of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if all these nations and even the despised Canaanites were represented in the ancestry of the Messiah, surely what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus came for all of them. He came for all those nations because they're all in his family. They're all in the family tree. He didn't want to exclude anybody. The gospel is not for just for all nations, though. Even more than that, the gospel is for all sinners. Now, I said before that the genealogy of Jesus is not a cleaned-up genealogy. And there's so much evidence of that in these Old Testament stories. Remember that I mentioned last week how... This genealogy functions as kind of a family album uh, for the people of Israel, but without the pictures. But each of those names brings forth a story. And, and what stories those are. There are some amazing stories in there. Some of them are kind of, of shocking. Let me just pick out a few and give you some examples. We mentioned about Tamar giving birth to twin sons by Judah. Judah was not her husband. Judah was her father-in-law. But after her husband, Ur, had died, Judah promised that when his younger son came of age, he would have him marry Tamar, uh, and then she would no longer be left a widow. Well, Judah didn't do it. He went back on his word. And so Tamar posed as a prostitute. And as a result, uh, Judah had intercourse with her, not knowing who she was, and these twin sons were born. There's a lot more to the story than just she gave birth to these two sons. Uh, it's a really ugly story. It's, it's a very sad story. It's a tragic story, but it's in there. It's in the story 
of Jesus. And then there's David and Bathsheba. Notice verse 6, excuse me, yeah, verse 6 of Matthew 1 says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And he means exactly what he says. David fathered a child by another man's wife. Because Bathsheba at the time was married to this Hittite man named Uriah. And she uh, became pregnant with a child that you remember eventually uh, died. Uh, and that uh, as a result, uh, David had had Uriah killed in order to try to cover everything up. And so when the child was born, the child uh, died and David married Bathsheba. Again, that's a terrible story. If something like that happened in your own life, you'd think it was a tragedy, wouldn't you? If it happened to somebody close to you, you'd think it was a tragedy. And yet, this is what happened in the life of Israel's greatest king. This is what happened in the life of Israel's greatest king. And it's there in the genealogy of Jesus. David is mentioned six times. In Matthew 1, as I pointed out last week, this genealogy just shouts his name throughout it. It starts off, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, son of David. And then it divides history uh, into those, portions, those periods of history, one of which leads up to David. He was the high point in Israel's history, and yet you have this terrible story in his life. You see how realistic the Bible is about human life? You see how honest it is? Even about the lives of its greatest heroes? They were sinners. And the Bible doesn't back away from that at all. Let's look at another one, Solomon, David's son. Solomon is remembered as what? The wisest man who ever lived. Because shortly after he became king, he was praying to God, and God said, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you to help you rule the people. And he said, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Brilliant, brilliant request, and God applauded him for it. And he said, because you haven't asked for riches and power, I'm going to give you that and wisdom too. And so he was renowned for his wisdom. People came from all over the world to hear the wisdom of David, of Solomon. It was so uh, amazing. But what happened to him later in his life? Even though God had blessed him with so much wisdom and with riches and military victories and given him the honor of building the temple, remember an honor that was denied to his father, David. The Bible says that he began to marry numerous foreign wives. Now, that was forbidden to the average Israelite, much less the king. And, and the way the scripture puts it is Solomon loved many foreign women. That's no exaggeration, folks. 700, 700 wives, most of whom are not Israelites. Well, what was wrong with that? Well, because they were not Israelites, they were idolaters. And they did just what God had said that they would do. They brought their idolatry with them. And so Solomon's got idolatry in his house. And first thing you know, what happens? Solomon begins to worship idols himself. And then he begins to erect temples for these pagan idols. He erects an altar to Baal. He put an altar to Baal in the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
He was the wisest man in the world until he got stupid. <laughs> and then he did some of the dumbest things anybody could have ever done. And scripture doesn't back away from that. It tells us about that. All that was forbidden to Israelites, much less to the king. But Solomon becomes an idolater as a result of not paying attention to what God has said. Yes, he was the world's wisest man, but then he got really dumb about his life. But he's in the genealogy, as, and he is the son of the greatest king and in the genealogy of the one true living son of God. One more. Notice who's in there, another king, Manasseh. Manasseh. Manasseh has the distinction of being the worst king Israel ever had. Worst king they ever had. And that's saying something because none of them were very good except for just a few. But he's the worst. Here's what the Old Testament says about him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 2 Kings 21 verse 2. He did more than the kings that were before him. He was worse than the kings that were before him. His father was King Hezekiah, one of their best kings. And he had tried to reverse the trend of idolatry uh, in the land of Israel. And then his son, Manasseh, comes along and undoes all of that. What did he do that was so bad? Well, he rebuilt the pagan places of worship that his father had destroyed. He built altars for Baal. Uh, he built one even in the Jerusalem temple itself. He sacrificed his own son. He burned his own son as a sacrifice to Baal. Now later, amazingly, the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 33 that he repented and God forgave him. God forgave him. What a horrible, horrible story he is. And yet there he is in the genealogy of the Son of God. Now, we could go on and on picking people out of this list, but there's no need because here's the thing. Everyone in this genealogy was a sinner. Everyone in there was a sinner. Some were worse than others, but every single one was a sinner. What does that tell you? That Jesus came into a world of sin in order to save those who were sinners. Do you get the message? He didn't come for the cleaned up people. He came to clean people up. That's the whole story. He didn't come to find those who are already righteous. As he himself said, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. All of the Judas and the Tamars and the Davids and Bathshebas. And the Solomons and Manassehs and, and all the rest. And thank God he did because that's why you and I can have hope. Because we can just see ourselves in that list, can't we? In that long list of sinners. If Jesus had come only for the cleaned up people, where would you and I be? How would we ever get cleaned up? But the genealogy says he came for all. So that the gospel is for all. And what amazing Good news, that is. Now, here's something we could 
take from this that would be completely wrong, completely false, to read that and say, well, it was all in Jesus' genealogy, it must be okay. It must be okay. No, that's not what's being said at all. That isn't the point at all. It means that everyone sins, but it means everyone can be redeemed from sin. Because sin is not okay. Sin kills. Sin kills us not only, not only in, in time, but also in eternity. So we have that wonderful good news that although everyone sins, everyone can be redeemed. And we need to tell that good news to other sinners as much as we possibly can. That's why the gospel ends the way that it does, with Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all the nations, men and women, all those sinners, wherever they might be. You know who has the longest family tree in history? According to Wikipedia, it's Confucius, the 6th century B.C. Chinese philosopher, there was a study done in 2009. Confucius genealogy was found to include 80 generations and more than 2 million people. 80 generations and more than 2 million people. And so Wikipedia says that Confucius has the longest genealogy in history. But Wikipedia is wrong. It frequently is, by the way, but <laughs> Wikipedia is wrong here, too. Because Confucius doesn't have the longest genealogy, the longest family tree in history. Jesus does. Jesus has the longest family tree in history. Let me tell you why. Let me let, let, me let Paul tell you why. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, listen closely to this because it's about you. He says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Did you get that? In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, all nations. There is neither male nor free. There is neither uh, male nor female. Excuse me. There is neither slave nor free. There is, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are in Christ... You're one of Abraham's offspring. You're one of that long line, and you're in the genealogy of Jesus, and you're in the spiritual genealogy of Abraham. So you see, spiritually speaking, this genealogy in Matthew 1 just keeps on going, and it's your genealogy. It includes every person who has ever put their faith in Christ, and as Paul says, has put him on by being baptized into him. Everyone, that even includes you, or it can include you, if you're willing to follow Jesus today. And if you follow him today, if you trust him today, if you're baptized into him today, then he will put you in his family tree. No better place that you could be. If you're ready to do that today, come and tell us. Let's stand and sing. Sinners, Jesus will receive.